Oh man, considering how much I think about packing, I really should be better at it than I am by this point in time. Hello, thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a fortnightly series looking at unfamiliar places around the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. timeline is full of people talking about how January is such a long month. For some reason, I didn't feel that vibe. For me, it just went as quickly as any other. Maybe it's because I don't do anything different at the start of the month compared with anyone else. Maybe it's just because of the nature of my job. Maybe it's just that, you know, I live alone and every day feels the same. Who knows? Anyway, I tried to set up a more enclosed space for my podcast recording last weekend. One of the less useful things in this flat is that the ceilings are, well, If I stand on a chair, I can't even reach the light bulbs, which is an issue as one of them has gone in the hallway. So while I can record with a blanket, well, a sofa throw over my head and and the computer screen, that itself causes issues given, you know, gravity and the laws of physics. So I tried to see if I could make a kind of box out of cardboard. I'd had a lot of cardboard, given that I'd recently bought a frame for a decidedly not-safe-for-work piece of artwork I commissioned off a friend in 2005, whose previous frame had broke some years back. And... While the artwork is pretty big and a non-standard size, 24 by 18 inches, the box the new frame came in was at least twice that, so I thought, I know, I'll cut this cardboard a bit and try and build a framework around my desk. Listener, I'm sure you know me by now, it went exactly as well as you imagine, which is why I'm recording this underneath the sofa throw. At some point, I will create a more soundproofed and stable structure, probably under close supervision. Anyway. Ooh. I've used a new social media concept this week. I mean, I've still not done even, like, you know, an Instagram Live or anything, partly for logistical reasons, and partly because I was worried that if I did something like that, no one would show up. But I have now done something that feels a little more on-brand, and which I initially never saw the use of. Twitter spaces. And they feel a bit like one of those panel discussion things, where, you know, we have got a host and some guest speakers, and an audience listening in who, if the host allows, can ask questions and contribute to the discussion. In a way, it's the ideal sort of functionality for me, an audio person who lives on Twitter. But I'd never really explored them before. And in part, this is because most of the time I'm using Twitter on my desktop-esque laptop via TweetDeck, so I never see them. And in fact, annoyingly, the only thing you you do even on the Twitter website is listen in. To host or speak on them, you have to be using the Twitter app. Hopefully that will change, as obviously my microphone is better on my computer. Anyway, one of my friends, someone I've known since primary school, but I've not known her for the whole of that time since then, is a school teacher, and one of the classes she teaches is studying travel writing. I have no idea why. We never did it. When I was 11 years old, didn't do anything like that. But anyway, she thought of me, and she got her class to ask me questions about my travel blogging brand. I wondered about the best way I could answer them, and my VA, who'd been pondering about Twitter spaces for a while, suggested it as a way to not only have an easy recording for them, but also so that I could answer the questions for the benefit of a wider audience. 
She'd suggested already that I do a Q&A for a podcast episode in the future, and this fits in with that theme. The experience went really well. It helps that my friend had supplied a list of questions, as it meant we had a framework to mould our conversation around. It also allowed the conversation to flow pretty naturally, and it never felt awkward at all. We managed to stay on topic without waffling, and even not to swear, which was fucking amazing, to be honest. We chatted for just over 50 minutes, making it a decent length for a podcast episode. In fact, probably with a bit of editing, I might even make it into one of my next podcast episodes, in fact. We've had a subsequent discussion, and we think we have enough material straight off the bat for at least another six or seven of these spaces. So the plan is we do them fortnightly too, in alternate weeks to the podcast, probably at first mostly around 12.30 GMT on Thursdays, because, you know, that's just the time that suits us. As things stand, the next one will be on the 10th of February, and it'll be on the subject of travel planning, with the proviso that BB is not a travel planner. I know that time doesn't so much suit many of my audience, but because they can be recorded and people can then listen to the output afterwards, it's not so much of an issue in the short term. I mean, that said, it would be lovely to have some audience participation. Note that none of this supersedes the Q&A episode, which is likely to be in the summer. So if you have any questions about me, my travels, my brand, or anything else you feel you want to know about me, then don't hesitate to drop me a note. I can even give you my first pet's name, the road I grew up on, and my grandmother's name if you like. I've probably mentioned at least two of them on previous episodes of my podcast. Because any website that uses that kind of thing as security questions really does need a slap up the backside. And anyway, what makes you think I tell the truth when answering them on those sites? In fact, one reputable, and by reputable I mean one of the most well-known and respected on the entire internet, asked those very questions, to which my given answers were all along the lines of, up yours. And, as a side note, it's well known that one of the most common birthdays for people on the internet is January the 1st, 1970. My birthday is not January the 1st, 1970. Given that I have a blog post called I Was Born in Year Zero, all about the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, you know the year at least, and I share my birth date, not the year obviously, with a US president and a fantasy creator. Though again, what makes you think I tell the truth on websites? Many of you don't even know my name. To be fair, my name is a movable feast, and even people who know my real name call me Barefoot, because apparently, oh, you look just like a barefoot. Hello, Shauna, because that's obviously a common enough name to have a mental image of. I will say my non-binary identity is crying out for a non-binary name, so... I mean... Call me Nell? Nell is a good name. Short for Nellipot, in case you were wondering. Anyway, podcast, episode, thing, thing, podcast, this one. My last three podcasts were all about London, and it was really enjoyable and fascinating to do the research for them, even if it was very revealing that most of the Londoners I know live in South London, something I really wasn't expecting, and those who do live in North London were somewhat reluctant to talk about it. Listeners, You know where the vibe is, and it's more likely to be found in Lewisham than Camden. That may have been a subtweet, but she's probably fallen asleep by now because I have such a soporific voice. This episode, though, is back to talking about aspects of travel. Some while ago, in fact I recall exactly when it was, I edited one of them in the pub in London in uh, Pimlico, in fact, just above which is a backpacker hostel, almost exactly two years ago. It was my last adventure before Covid hit and me and Joe, this way up on YouTube and Twitter, did some videoing in Camden mm, and Islington in prep for a series about London that never happened. But Joe, now I've done podcasts about it, I'm definitely up for continuing that vibe and now I have more concept of it. 
though I am also aware that Jay Foreman has already done much of it, so, you know, I'd feel like a bit of a copycat. Close bracket. I did two podcasts on luggage, on packing, on what you take with you. Some while ago, I realised there was probably mileage in taking another look at this topic, but focusing on packing mistakes. On whether you'd packed things that you realised were pointless, or not packed things you realised were vital and had to scramble around trying to find them. Maybe you'd accidentally packed something that later became serendipitously useful. Or the opposite, you'd forgotten you'd packed something that caused you hassle later on in your journey. Things like this, from Darlene, who runs the Thirsty Journeys blog. Many years ago, we actually ended up getting, uh, it's called an immersion heater from some friends. And if you don't know what that is, it's basically this plastic handle with a big metal coil on the end and it plugs in and you use it to heat or boil water. So we brought it on our first trip. I think we ended up actually using it because one of the hotels we were staying in um, in Italy didn't have a kettle and we made soup that day. But I mean, most places have a kettle or some way to get hot water. So for whatever reason, we decided that we were going to bring this um, immersion heater with us on the next three trips and never used it again other than the one time. And it was so bulky. And because we backpack, it just took up way more space and weight than it was worth. So yeah, after a couple of years, we did finally get rid of it. But it took a while because it had been gifted to us. So we sort of felt bad about getting rid of it. But it was just completely pointless um, and, and way too bulky for the way that we like to travel. The most useless thing I've taken on my travels has been an electric beard trimmer. I generally use a beard trimmer in my normal life because I don't have the mindset to shave. It just strikes me as far too much effort on an everyday basis. And besides, a beard trimmer can be carried in hand luggage without security at airports raising a fuss. As an aside, I tend to beard trim every two weeks because that tends to be when it starts to itch. I so want to have laser surgery on my beard hair. You might wonder as to why it would be useless. Well, the obvious answer is barbers exist. And even I, with my social anxiety, have managed to go to them and have them shave me. Weirdly, I never feel anyone can shave me as well as I can shave myself, though obviously it's still a closer and smoother finish than a beard trimmer. Point of note, a barber I went to in Luganville in Vanuatu used a raw razor blade to shave me with. Like one of those things that you'd slot into a knife. Definitely not a safety blade. Obviously, I'm going to trust them because they do it several times a day all year, but still, it's not something I'm going to sit there and be truly relaxed about. I've also had shaves in places as diverse as Alabama, Singapore, Philippines and China. Weirdly, I did not visit a barber in West Africa, so by the end of my trip there, I looked a bit scruffy. This wasn't helped, maybe, by my mostly having to be barefoot due to standal existence failure. For reasons known only to biology, though, I feel my facial hair grew slower in those days. But, going back to the subject... On my trip around Central Asia in August and September 2014, I took my beard trimmer, as I knew I'd be away for a while, and it would save me the irk of going into a backstreet barber knowing none of the any of the potential languages on offer. However, it didn't quite work out that way. For one thing, the voltage and electricity supply was such that the trimmer didn't actually work when plugged into the main supply. This meant I was running on battery power only, which didn't last long. And then I managed to lose the power lead anyway, because I do that sort of thing. I think I ended up dumping the thing in a hostel in Kyrgyzstan somewhere. To be fair, it was getting old at that point, and interestingly, its replacement is the one I'm still using now. I probably need to replace it at some point. Remarkably, that was the second time I'd made that error. 
Some years previously, I'd taken a beard trimmer, possibly the same one, on an adventure to the USA where I had the same problem with the voltage and it simply did not fire into gear. You'd have thought I'd have known about this and got myself a transformer. You'd be wrong. When you live in a country with a strong electrical supply, 240 volts, you kind of assume everything you have will work everywhere. And to be fair, the vast majority of my electronics do. I've never had a problem with phones or laptops, etc. Just beard trimmers. Speaking of travelling abroad with electrical items, one of the things I have had to buy en route is travel adapters. This happened to me in Australia, and it wasn't because I'd forgotten to bring one or I'd lost it en route. It's because mine had broken and I didn't have a spare. I ended up buying a universal one, but since it was powered entirely by USB, it turns out it wasn't really that powerful. I did also end up leaving the Australian adapter bit in Australia. But then, no one else really uses Aussie plugs, so that's no loss. Darlene, who you heard from earlier, also had issues with the universal adapter. But very different issues. One of the more useless <laughs> items that we travelled with for a few years was a travel converter and electrical adapter. But the thing with that was it was universal. So it came with every conceivable electrical adapter that you would ever need to travel everywhere around the world. So it was the size of a small brick and it weighed a ton. It was awkward. It was, you know, solid. And when we travel, we tend to only go to at most maybe three countries with maybe one electrical conversion amongst them. So uh, it took a while, but, you know, we had to do our research and we finally found um, adapters for individual countries, you know, they're nice and small and compact, and you only bring one or two, the ones that are the most necessary, rather than this thing that covers, you know, the entire globe and every conceivable electrical plug that you might happen to come across and probably won't in your travels. I'll concede my purchase was more having to buy things because you've realised you've needed them, rather than genuine mistakes, since we can't foresee every opportunity. I've definitely had several situations where I've had to buy things on my travels because I've either not got round to getting them before I leave, or I plain forgot. While in both Australia and New Zealand, I've had to buy anti-malarial tablets because, I don't know, I just don't like phoning and making doctor's appointments. And over here, the phone is almost exclusively the only way to get in touch with your GP. I could have contacted my old surgery in Nottinghamshire by fax if I'd so wished, but, you know, I tend to prefer to live in the 21st century. It was easier in Australia, but that's because I was staying with a friend, so I simply used hers. New Zealand involved me finding a doctor's practice that accepted foreign walk-ins, which was on the nth floor of an ugly modern office building in Wellington in this case, and then a local chemist that did prescriptions. They also took 50 quid off me because they noted one of my recurrent jabs was out of date. I don't recall which, tetanus, typhoid, hep B or something, one of those anyway. I could check. I mean, to be honest, I have my vaccination passport to hand somewhere. I needed it in West Africa to prove I'd been jumped for yellow fever. I just can't be mothered to find it. The other time I can remember having to buy something specific that I hadn't brought but needed, not counting things like new memory cards or replacement USB leads, was um, definitely off-brand. On my interrail trip in autumn 2019, I passed through Switzerland. It only occurred to me quite late that I could visit CERN, the European Organisation for Nuclear Research. I didn't know they had a visitor centre, but they do, and you can take tours of part of their setup. Except one of the rules and regulations is that you must wear closed shoes to do so. Closed shoes are not something I often carry with me. Heck, I mean, apart from the sandals I'm possibly wearing, I very rarely carry a second pair of footwear at all. So once I found this out, I had to go around a supermarket in Toulon, the French town I was in at the time I was doing the research, and buy a pair of cheap Converse knockoffs for about 20 euros. 
which I've worn about four times in total since then, all of which were later on that same trip because that trip finished in December, and December in Hungary and Slovakia tends to be cold and snowy. As an aside, at least two women on that tour group at CERN were wearing solid, but open-toed, sandals. Another aspect to this is packing things that aren't useless, but it turns out you never use. Alexei, from TravelX, and who you heard from earlier in my pods about packing, is not fond of doing this. I think in terms of packing something useless, it's not so much that I pack useless things, it's I pack things that I don't end up using. So while there's definitely a reason why I pack it, I don't necessarily get around to it. So over the years, I've tried to bring down my packing list as much as possible so that I don't bring any just-in-case items. But it's still quite difficult to do sometimes when you think, oh, what if if I I might need this particular jacket or, you know, this many T-shirts and so on. So I'd say for me, it's bringing jumpers, like warm clothes, which I don't necessarily need because one hoodie or one jump is actually more than enough so I do end up bringing too many layers sometimes so I'd say that's where um, I really need to kind of get even better at in terms of packing. Someone else who has done this sort of thing quite recently is Martha from the blog May Cause Wanderlust. So let me start by saying I don't subscribe to this idea that the less you pack the better traveller you are you know all you need is a pair of pants and a toothbrush I don't really subscribe to that idea but obviously there's a pragmatic practical benefit in having uh, a case or a bag that's light enough to carry off and on all the transportation that you need so having less weight is definitely good when you're traveling and for me I've done a couple of trips in the last couple of months since the world sort of reopened and these are actually the first trips I've taken since I've started travel blogging so having a DSLR camera with me and lenses and having my laptop with me is new and having that extra um, stuff and extra weight does put perhaps more pressure on me being selective about what else I take with me when traveling especially if I want to be able to carry it all easily myself Um, and on a very recent trip that I took to Europe I was frustrated that I took unnecessary stuff because I was going on and off a lot of trains and planes and I ended up feeling like I had a bit too much weight. One of the items I wish I had not packed that I did was a Kindle. I have used Kindles before when travelling solo and they can be a great way to sort of read when you're perhaps in a restaurant or something on your own or a cafe or just have a bit of downtime. But I, if I'd really thought about it, it wasn't going to be that kind of trip. I had quite a lot packed in, so I knew I wasn't going to be sort of left with hours to, to sort of spend and nothing to do. So really, if I'd thought about it, I would have known that was a bad idea. The other thing that I wish I had not taken that I took was a hardback notebook. And this is a strange one because I packed it sort of with this thought of maybe this will come in handy. But I just never use a hardback notebook for blogging. I use the notes on my phone if I have ideas that I want to jot down. So the idea of having a notebook was sort of out of left field. And again, probably if I'd thought about it, the idea of starting a new habit when travelling was probably not very likely. So the Kindle and the hardback notebook were unfortunately extra weight that I was dragging on and off trains across Europe that I really didn't need to have had. However, one thing that I wish I had packed, that I did not pack, was some proper trainers. You see, I took daps with me instead. Um, My husband laughs that I call them daps, you know, um, kind of canvas tennis shoe type shoes, 
rubber sole, comfortable, uh, very sort of fine for, for walking around. And I like to do a lot of walking when I go to a new city to explore it. But I was doing so much walking on this trip because I was in so many different cities. I was in Paris and Barcelona and then Madrid, Lisbon and Porto in Portugal. Uh, halfway around this trip, I started getting really, really exhausted feet and blisters. And I really wish I, I had had something more comfortable, something softer with the slightly kinder, you know, in terms of the stretchability of the fabric, something with a bit more shock absorption. And I know the lesson on this one because I thought about taking trainers before I went. But the argument that I came up with at the time was that the the daps I've got, which are kind of gold, would be more adaptable. And if I was just walking the streets they'd be fine for that and if I was going into some somewhere semi-smart you know if I was going to a restaurant or something they'd also perhaps be smart enough in a way that trainers might not be so I'd argued that I was making a smart move taking the depth but really they weren't quite sort of comfortable enough and uh, didn't have enough performance in them I guess to keep my poor feet protected so I got a lot of blisters so yeah, that's what I would have done. I would have swapped the notebook and the Kindle for some better shoes or even better. Maybe somebody could design some shoes that have a sort of high performance angle, good for sort of walking a lot, but smart enough to get into a restaurant. That would be amazing if someone could do that. As you know, I usually travel with only hand luggage. This means space is at a premium and I generally try to pack only things that I'll find are useful, even if it turns out later I'm mistaken. I'm not saying that makes me a better traveller, but for the travels that I do, I find it makes things easier and more efficient. I want to be, you know, looking around a backpack I can actually carry, you know? And there's no sense in carrying something around that I'm not going to use, because by not carrying it, my pack can be lighter. That said, there are regularly things I pack, but don't use. None of them are clothes, although after taking only two pairs of trousers on one two-week trip and having one of them rip hugely in an inconvenient area after three days, means I do tend to pack spare clothing just in case. So while there are sometimes clothes I don't end up wearing, often it's a pair of thick socks just in case it gets a bit cold at night, I'm still glad that I've taken them. Rather, oddly, it's things like Martha mentions. I'll often take an e-reader on the grounds that I, you know, I think I'll get bored on transport or in the evenings or in cafes. But weirdly, I never do. Or rather, I always seem to find something else to do. It must be said sometimes I have the thought of, well, I wouldn't often do it at home, so why would I do it while travelling? which, as an aside, is one of the minor reasons why I never saw the point of paying extra for hotels with gyms. But equally, I know that I'm not going to be taking my home computer on most of my travels, so what else would I be doing at night? The answer appears to be not reading young adult dystopian fiction, at any rate. And yet, I always take it, because I hate being bored. And I just know the one time I don't have it is the one time something will happen to the bus I'm on, and I'll be stuck in the back of beyond for a couple of hours while they fix it. Mind you, these days I have podcasts to listen to, and I do usually carry headphones. They may often not work and require me to constantly hold the wire between my fingers in a specific way, but let's be honest, what do you expect from something that costs two quid from B&M? I'm far, far too dyspraxic and ADHD to be let loose with expensive headphones and leave them on trains on the way to Glasgow. I don't know anyone that's done that. One other thing I packed and never used also leads into my next subject to mention. When I did my two-week trip around Israel and Jordan several years ago, one of my last-minute packs was a book on Teach Yourself Arabic. My thought was, well, you know, while I'm in Jordan and Palestine, it might help me to have better conversations with the locals. This went down about as well as you can imagine. It was one of the reasons I was refused entry to a museum in Acre. 
Though given it was a museum about how the Israelis kicked the British out in the 1940s, I suspect the main reason was more because of the passport I was holding. It also didn't endear myself to the border guards at Tel Aviv airport on my way out, but my experiences there were ridiculous, and if anyone ever wants to take a trip to Israel, I'd strongly recommend that they fly out of Jordan. Flying in is fine, it's just the only country I've ever been to where leaving it's harder than entering it. And how many times did I end up using that book? Nonce. Because everybody spoke decent enough English for me to have really good conversations with. Urgh. Anyway, so, I have packed other things in my luggage that have caused unexpected issues. I had an overnight stopover in Singapore on my way back from Southeast Asia once, and the woman at customs was insistent that the x-ray device was showing that I had a knife in my luggage. I was very confused. But every time I'd queried, I don't have a knife, what knife? She was insistent that I had a knife, and then I showed it to her. It took an emptying of half my backpack to reveal the culprit. I'd bought a large metallic hair clip in Cambodia for a friend back home, which was showing up on their scanners as suspicious. Once the item had been discovered, they were grudgingly happy with me and let me go on my way. Another issue I had with airport security was again on my trip to Israel and Jordan. Despite the destination, this was an issue leaving the UK. I was travelling only with hand luggage and thus taking as few liquids and gels as possible and I was experimenting with powdered toothpaste. However, when my bag went through the scanners, it showed up as bright green and yellow on their security screens, causing, shall we say, rather a lot of raised eyebrows. Evidently, powdered toothpaste has the same x-ray signature as high explosive. Not what you need when you're going to an already volatile part of the world. Well, Israel anyway. Jordan's about as volatile as the Marshall College building in Aberdeen. Locals call it the Hashemite Kingdom of Boredom for a reason. It is to the Middle East what Botswana is to Southern Africa. But this is not a podcast about the world's least volatile countries, which, let's be honest, would also be incredibly off-brand. As an aside, powdered toothpaste tastes particularly foul, and really, little tip for you, not worth the effort, not worth the workaround. Just take a small tube of toothpaste instead. It's less hassle, and tastes nicer. Weirdly, I've had less issue in Australia and New Zealand than you might expect. On my first trip over there, the customs in Australia confiscated the apple that I'd been given on the flight over for one of the snacks. But that was only to be expected, I guessed. And it wasn't until I was cooking in a hostel in Vanuatu that I realised I'd been carrying stock cues from England all through New Zealand. The customs dog at Auckland Airport had obviously not noticed them at the bottom of my backpack either. Someone who has had trouble in Australia for having an unexpected item in bagging area is Amanda, host of the Thoughtful Travel podcast, and who, being Australian, proves that even citizens have their moments at that border. Well, my packing story is about an item that I... It's not that I forgot I packed it, it's just that, well, I didn't know enough about it, and I packed it and then it caused trouble. So this is going back about 11 years. It was my first trip as a mother, so my first trip with my son, who at the time was... Uh, about four months old, and it was no short trip. It was a trip from Western Australia all the way to Germany and back, so quite the effort. And if you've ever travelled with a baby, you know that they have a lot of stuff and they need all these extra things to go with them. So it was probably my least, not probably, definitely my least favourite packing experience ever, 
and I'm glad I will never have to repeat it because now he's already nearly 12 and he can pack and carry his own baggage. So anyway, we were actually returning from Germany and we had been visiting his grandparents and aunts and uncles and stuff there. So in our baggage on the way back, we had lots of gifts that they'd given us very kindly while we were there. So we rock up back in Perth and I know that when you enter Australia that um, the customs and quarantine people are really very strict. You know, when we, we watch those kind of border security shows on TV and people are always getting picked up for having brought, uh, you know, a mango or you know various kinds of food or other things that are restricted um, and that you can't bring into Australia. So we get there and we're uh, we pulled over to be searched as we leave the airport. So we've you know, arrived, we've been on a, a very, very long flight with a very small baby and it's the middle of the night and I'm really not with it. And then the customs officer says, um, you know, puts the suitcase through the scanner and says, um, so there's a problem, something in here that uh, is a problem. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? Oh no, um, I don't want to be fined. I don't want to be taken away into a room. You know, all the things that happen on those shows. And my thought immediately went to a knife. So my then mother-in-law had gifted me um, a very good, in fact, I still use it to this day, um, a ceramic kitchen knife. And I thought, oh, the knife, maybe I'm not allowed to bring the knife into Australia. It's like a weapon. Oh no, oh, I'm so sorry. I say to the man, I'm so sorry. Is it the knife, the knife? And he's like, oh. I didn't see a knife. I'm like, oh no, what's going on? This is even worse. And he's like, oh, okay. He had a look around. No, the knife is fine. It's something else. I'm like, um, I don't know. I'm sorry. And I felt like I was going to be in trouble if I didn't manage to confess what I was apparently smuggling in. So I was really feeling quite stressed. And he said, uh, what about the seeds? And I was like, the seeds, what? I'm, you know, we, I, I'm, uh, what are you talking about? I'm not bringing any seeds in. And so he rummaged around and he found a toy elephant that my um, then father-in-law had given as a gift to my son. And it was a very cute um, toy elephant. And what I didn't realize was that it was also uh, one of those toys that you could put in the microwave and warm up and it was like a heat pack as well. And I didn't know that. It just looked like a stuffed elephant. So it turned out that you could unzip him and in his guts were <laughs> all these cherry seeds and the cherry seeds were the things that could be heated up and they had some effect, they retained the heat or something, I don't know. And so he pulled these out and I was immediately like, oh, I'm so sorry, I had no idea, I'm so sorry, you can keep them, you can keep them, you can throw it away, I don't mind and, you know, I didn't want to get in trouble. And he's like, okay, well, we'll keep them but you can have the elephant. So I was like, okay, thank you, thank you, thank you, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. Not that I really, really thought I'd done anything wrong, but anyway. And so to this day, we have a deflated looking elephant toy that doesn't have any stuffing in the middle. And I still have a little bit of panic every time I go through those uh, um, customs areas where they're checking my what I've packed because <laughs> I live in fear that I have packed something that will cause trouble. Uh, I've never done it again since, but I definitely hope I never do again. An ex-girlfriend's nine-year-old son had a problem with a stuffed animal, but theirs was when leaving the UK. At the time, he had a stuffed hedgehog. He called it Hedge Hedge, quite a big thing that I think would have had a normal use as a doorstop, but he quite liked using it as a companion. Anyway, the thing was full of, I don't know, some kind of packing material, and he tried to take it as hand luggage. Caused quite a kerfuffle at the security scanners, as they didn't really know what to make of it. They did eventually let him on board with it, though. As far as I know, he still has it. From things forgotten in luggage to things, well, just forgotten. 
I don't think I've ever forgotten to pack things. My problem, rather, stems from dyspraxia and ADHD, and the issue that things I pack get... lost. The most common of these is reusable water bottles. There have been at least two occasions when I've left water bottles in hostel rooms in London while overnighting there on the way to somewhere more foreign, which has forced me to go seeking them out in the supermarkets of middle city suburbs. The Tesco Express on Tooley Street by London Bridge Station does not sell them, or at least didn't when I tried, a fact that really irked me at the time. But in general, in my travel experiences, I have managed to lose many items. Water bottles, though, are just the most common. What happens is I have them by the side of my bed when I sleep, and because they're generally the last things that I pack, you know, for easy access, I put my backpack on and then forget they exist because I've already packed my bag at that point, so there's nothing else that needs to go in. My second most common thing to lose are hats, because I sit down in pubs or on buses or trains and take them off. Because I'm not used to wearing hats, it doesn't occur to me that I ever was wearing a hat. So when I get up to get off, I was never wearing a hat, I am not wearing a hat, therefore there is no hat. A slight alternative to that was Winarkin Cathedral. I was holding my hat and then took a picture of the ceiling. About ten minutes later, elsewhere in the cathedral, I realised I was no longer holding my hat. I never found it. Annoyingly, when I took my hat off in the first place, I had a thought of, I should have put my hat in my day pack. Nah, it'll be fine, what can go wrong? You can infer from that that I either overtrust myself, or I really don't know how just inept I am. I suspect the former, which isn't actually better, to be honest. I have also lost hats in Benin, because I took it off on a minibus and forgot to put it back on, and along the Pennine Way, because I took it off in a pub and it completely disappeared, and I didn't notice for a few hours. The only hat I no longer have that I didn't lose was the palm hat I had in Southern Africa. I left it in a hostel in Durban, because it was huge and falling apart. It's not just hats, though. I left a new fleece coat sweatshirt thing on a train from Romania to Moldova, because it was an overnight train and I'd taken it off to sleep, put it on the luggage rack, and because it was warm on my arrival, it never occurred to me to dress warmly, so I forgot the fleece existed. Never got it back and I had to rush around the street market in Chisinau to find a coat in my size, because May in Moldova and Ukraine is not a dry time. This was also the trip when my new sandals snapped, and the closed shoes I needed for Chernobyl were falling apart and virtually unusable. I'd taken them purely for that visit there, because it was required. Not for anything to do with radiation, I may add, but only because the place was littered with broken glass and rusty metal like nails and screws. This meant I flew back from Lithuania to the UK barefoot because I literally had no viable shoes. No one cared, either in Vilnius or at Luton Airport. Make of that what you will. I did the same on a bus in North Macedonia. I rushed off the coach from Kosovo because I realised it was about to stop in a part of Skopje much nearer to my hostel than the central bus station was. I managed to grab my bag and my sandals, specifically noting it would be both on-brand and awkward to have left them behind. But I did leave my sweatshirt because it was on the luggage rack. Which, given it was October, meant my last day in the country was slightly chilly, given that all I had were short-sleeved shirts. I also nearly managed to lose a laptop this way. I left it on a bag on the luggage rack of a National Express coach to Gatwick Airport North Terminal. This was on the way to the USA back in, I don't know, it was either 2006 or 2009, I guess. Fortunately, its final destination was South Terminal, so I managed to retrieve it on the coach's way back north. And because I'd arrived at the airport quite some time before my plane departed, which is more than I would do now. Had it been going to its usual destination of Brighton, that would have been an expensive mistake. Usually, 
This is harmless, but there was one occasion where it did get a tad scary. I'd taken a bus in Chile from La Serena into the Elqui Valley, into the small town of Pisco Elqui, deep, deep in the mountains. The hotel I was staying at was close to one of the last bus stops, so I grabbed my backpack and wandered off. It was a really warm day, so I never thought about my coat that was still on the bus, in the luggage rack, obviously. The only problem this time being that in one of the pockets of the coat was my wallet with my money and debit card in. And in another pocket of the coat was my passport. Fortunately, the bus was terminating in the town, so all I ended up having to do was find the bus station, get to the right bus and get my coat back. It's not an easy thing to do surreptitiously and certainly not something easy to explain in a foreign language. You may be relieved to know I did manage to get my coat back before the bus made its lengthy way back to La Serena. And you'd have thought that such a shock like that would have made me more aware of my surroundings and belongings. You'd have thought wrongly, because of course, ADHD doesn't work that way. You can conclude from this that I've needed Adderall for quite a long time. It will also never cease to amuse and scare me in equal detail that the mitigation for people being distracted and forgetting things on a regular basis is to take a pill on a regular basis. Anyway, despite his fetish for luggage and packing, Alexei is also guilty of forgetting to pack things. So in terms of forgetting to pack something important, uh, my first solo trip since uh, the pandemic, uh, I went to Spain in October. I was very confident in my uh, packing. I packed my bag as normal, got on the plane, everything was fine, got to the uh, hostel and the amount of stuff I forgot that I needed um, because I'm out of practice was was pretty funny. I uh, didn't bring a padlock, uh, which I would normally just even just have in my bag. It would literally just be there all the time. Didn't bring that. And I didn't bring a day pack, which is literally one of the most important things I normally bring with me. So I had to spend the first morning of my trip looking around for a decathlon so I could buy a day pack. The final thought I had for this podcast was, have I ever packed something without thinking, only to realise that in fact I did need it and I was lucky to have packed it? A serendipitous moment, one that saved me time, money and admin stress and served to define as the highlight of my trip. that's about all for this episode. It's a bit shorter than recent ones. I've never known quite how long to make them. I used to aim for 30 minutes, but these days I'm feeling 40 to 45 is an optimal length. My geographic posts are the longest though, probably just because there's more to say about them. So join me next time when I take another trip beyond Beyond the brush. Until then, don't forget your toothbrush. And if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass Bonus by Kai Engel, which is available by the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or you can email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. The podcast has a Facebook group at travel.tales.beyond.brochure, and I have a Patreon for access to rare extra content. That's patreon.com slash traveltalesbeyondbrochurepod. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now. Bye.